Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. The following is an encore presentation of Issues Etc. We suffer from this age of safetyism. We are caught up in a culture that idolizes being safe at all costs, and, and with that comes a selfishness. The left has essentially declared that only a wanted child is an image of dei child. Only a wanted child is a child that's made in the image of God. And, and if you're not desired, then you don't have any intrinsic value. And to say that whatever the major total obstacle is that they're facing, whatever hardship, to say that God has nothing to do with it, then sets sin or this fallen world as though it were its own God. It's absolutely true that the Bible norms the church's creeds, but these summaries of faith tell us precisely what the church believes the Bible is saying. Amateur home improvers in Italy love issues, etc. I was born in 1964, so in the course of my life so far, things have changed a lot. The technology has changed, the politics have changed, but a more fundamental change has taken place as a Christian in America. I grew up and was born into an America where Christianity was viewed, by and large, as a positive. Sometime, that shifted and kind of became neutral and now, without a doubt, in my, well, going on 60s, it's a negative. How did that happen? When did it happen? And why? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. on this Monday afternoon, February the 20th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Aaron Wren of the American Reformer joins us to talk about evangelicalism and culture. Then we'll spend our two of Issues Etc., studying the hymn of the day for Ash Wednesday, From Depths of Woe, I Cry to Thee, with Dr. Arthur Jest of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Aaron Wren is co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, a nonprofit seeking to reinvigorate Protestantism in American life. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, and he's author of a column for First Things titled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Describe the culture war that's taking place currently within evangelicalism today. Yes, they used to talk about the culture war between conservative Christians, which included evangelicals, but also many conservative Catholics, etc., against secular society. Now there seems to be something of a culture war or a civil war with inside evangelicalism itself. And I can illustrate that through a couple examples. One is David French, who you would have thought of as a staunch culture warrior, conservative, evangelical. He has, since the Trump nomination in 2016, morphed into sort of a critic of conservative evangelicals, it sort of turned against them. We see something similar that happened with Russell Moore, who was the former policy chief of the Southern Baptist Convention, who actually left his denomination after being disenchanted with them voting for Trump and other matters. And then you have people like uh, New York City Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller. Previously, he was universally admired by almost everyone, and now conservatives are starting to attack him. 
in a way that they never would have done before. So we're seeing these sorts of realignments and different parties that sort of seem to be fighting with each other. And it doesn't seem to be going away, even though Trump is not around anymore, even though he obviously had something to do with it. So are these battle lines within evangelicalism only theological? Well, I think there is a theological element, but it's really somewhat cultural as well. There are sort of three different groups that we can get into that I divide the evangelical world into, sort of the culture warriors, the seeker sensitives, and the cultural engagers. And they all sort of come from sort of different heritages theologically, but also culturally as well. The culture warriors tend to be more rural. The seeker sensitives tend to be more suburban. And the cultural engagers tend to be more urban, for example. And we can get into more of that later. So I think there are some sort of theological issues there, but there are also, as well, various cultural issues, political issues, dispositional issues, for example. You also talk about three stages of American secularization. What are they briefly? And then we'll unpack them one by one. Yes, this is really the heart of my analysis. If you go back to the 50s, this was the high watermark of Christianity in America. Over half of adults attended church each Sunday. Christianity was sort of softly institutionalized in the country. It wasn't the official religion, but there was a sort of softly institutionalized Protestantism in the country, sort of a generic Protestantism. And then Starting in the 60s, I could date it to the Kennedy assassination, Christianity started to go into a decline in America, and that is decline in terms of attendance in church, decline in terms of the fortunes of the mainline Protestant denominations, but also sort of decline in beliefs in traditional Christian doctrines morally, especially with the sexual revolution, the cultural upheavals of the 60s, etc., And Christianity, as it went into this decline in this post-1964 period, I divide that period of decline into three phases that I call the positive, the neutral, the negative world. Now, the positive world, which lasted from 64 to 94, although I call it positive, it is a period of decline for Christianity. But during this phase, society still views Christianity by and large positively. To be known as a good church-going man makes you look like a good, upstanding citizen of society. And if you violate traditional social norms and moral norms of Christianity, such as by having an affair, it hurts you. For example, if you're a politician or you're in business. Around about 1994, we hit a tipping point into what I call the neutral world. And in the neutral world, Christianity is no longer viewed as a positive, but it's not necessarily viewed as a negative either. It's sort of like one lifestyle choice among many that you could have in a sort of pluralistic society. And then in 2014, we hit a second tipping point, and we're now in what I call the negative world, in which society, particularly elite culture, views Christianity negatively, or at least with suspicion. And Christian morality, the traditional variety, is now explicitly rejected. And in fact, Christianity is now often seen as the greatest threat to the new public moral order, social order. I think we see this manifested in a lot of the concern over things like Christian nationalism, as well as the vicious attacks that certain mainstream publications like CNN unleashed on the He Gets Us ad campaign during the Super Bowl. Uh, There's people trying to advertise Jesus loving his enemies. And apparently, according to one member of Congress, uh, that was fascism. And so this is a very new situation in which American Christians find themselves 
And the pressures of this negative world bearing down on the different sorts of groups and ministry strategies is what I argue is one of the producers of this intra-evangelical culture war. So on the subject of the positive world, how did evangelicals shift political loyalties from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party during that positive period? Yes, evangelicals were originally Democrats. A lot of people don't remember that, don't know that. Newsweek magazine called 1976 the year of the evangelical on account of Jimmy Carter getting elected president. People forget that Jimmy Carter, who was a lifelong Southern Baptist, you know, a Sunday school teacher, that he was the first evangelical president of the country. There was a lot of worry that this, you know, Bible Belt guy was going to become the president. And even as late as 1983, a plurality of evangelicals still identified as Democrats. But certainly in the late 70s and into the 80s, there was a complete realignment in which evangelicals by and large caucus with the Republicans. And by the end of the 80s, were essentially the largest and most loyal voting block of the Republican Party. Now, the mechanics of exactly how that happened are underexplored in my view. I don't know the history of it. It was associated in part with a movement that was called the New Right in the late 70s and the early 80s. You may know that there's a movement they call the New Right today, but as I like to say, there's nothing older than the New Right. Every so often, there's another New Right This was a sort of an insurgent movement that was not entirely a result of um, religious issues and involved a lot of political issues as well. The Heritage Foundation is a product of that, for example, and it's probably one of the least studied areas of conservative history. And so I'm not exactly certain how it happened that evangelicals shifted, but they certainly did shift their political affiliations, probably starting in the late 70s and definitely into the 80s. How was the culture war engaged during that positive period? Well, the culture war was one of the two responses that I identify by evangelicals to this period of decline. And what happened was as Christianity started to lose its hold on society and as Christian moral norms came under attack through the sexual revolution, abortion was legalized, all of these things, the Culture warriors saw this happening and they decided to mobilize politically to fight back. They said, we are going to take back our country. And the very name of the leading organization of this period, Moral Majority, speaks to the positive world. It was this idea that it was at least plausible to claim that evangelicals spoke for the majority of the country in their moral views. Now, that might not have been true even then. But it wasn't ludicrous. Like Richard Nixon's silent majority, there was something to it. Nobody today would claim that evangelicals represent a moral majority in the country. And so the idea was that elite culture was turning negative on Christianity. There's all this crazy stuff coming out of colleges, sort of like today. And so evangelicals should mobilize and fight back against it politically through the political system and other means. And so we just think of Jerry Falwell. We can think of Pat Robertson and his 700 Club being part of this. James Dobson probably fits into there. Ralph Reed and the Christian Coalition, people like that. But they essentially were alarmed by these trends in society, and they decided to fight back. What is seeker sensitivity, and how did that fit into evangelicalism's strategy during the positive period? 
seeker sensitivity also developed in the 1970s as a response to the decline of church attendance in America. So you had these mainline denominations that had been dominant through the mid-century era, and they were going into decline. And there was a lot of research and hand-wringing over this. How do we turn around attendance? Which, of course, they never actually figured out for the most part. But a new generation of sort of baby boom people or baby boom friendly people came to the fore and and developed a new way of doing church. And this would include people like Bill Hybels, who created Willow Creek Church in Chicago, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. So the story is that Bill Hybels went door to door in suburban Chicago asking people, do you go to church? And if they said yes, interview over. If they said no, he goes, why don't you go to church? And he listened to all their complaints about church. And then he said, I'm going to design a church that'll get these people in the door. We're not going to have all these stodgy old hymns. We're not going to make people dress up in suits. We're going to have contemporary music. It's going to be very informal. It's going to be non-denominational. We're not going to emphasize all these distinctives. You know, the pastor is not going to wear a Geneva gown up on stage. It's going to have a more auditorium-like feel versus, uh, you know, an old, old-time church. And so they created this very consumer-friendly Christianity. It was, it was a very therapeutically oriented type of preaching and, and services. And indeed, it did bring people in the door, and particularly the baby boomers who were suburbanizing at this time, you know, moving to places like suburban Chicago, moving to Orange County, where Saddleback Church was located. And so this sort of baby boomer suburbia became, in a sense, the evangelical heartland. When you think of an evangelical church, you tend to think of a suburban non-denominational megachurch. And these are what I'm talking about when we talk about seeker sensitivity. This is really the broad mainstream of evangelicalism. Now, these churches have tended to be Republican voting, I think just as the suburbs were, were historically Republican voting, but they weren't as directly political, perhaps, as the more explicit culture warriors. We're talking with Aaron Wren of The American Reformer about evangelicalism and culture on the other side of the break. Something happened in 1994 that signaled the transition from a positive to a neutral view of Christianity in American culture. We'll find out what it is next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. You're personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating under the theme, Just As I Am, January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. For additional information, visit lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Do you dream about having stained glass windows at your church, but know they are too expensive to ever get them? Ad Crucem has the solution. 
Our window clings are an excellent way to enhance the beauty of your church without breaking that glass ceiling. Visit adcrucem.com and reach out to us to work with you on this project. Ad Crucem, established in 2014 and still going strong. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. America's tradition of liberty depends on having colleges and universities that equip young people for the responsibilities of freedom. At Concordia University Chicago, freedom is a pillar of our education. We prepare our students to live as free, self-governing citizens. I'm Dr. Rachel Ferguson, director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia Chicago. I invite you to visit us. Discover what it means for freedom to become a pillar of your future. Learn more at cuchicago.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing evangelicalism and culture with Aaron Wren of The American Reformer. So, Aaron, what happened, as far as you're concerned, in 1994 that signaled the transition from a positive to a neutral view of Christianity in American culture? Well, I really debated whether we should call 1994 the date. You could also argue for 1989 because that was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Certainly the end of the Cold War and the transition to a sort of post-Cold War world opened the door for there to be a rethinking of America's relationship with Christianity in sort of official culture. During the Cold War, the communism was an officially atheist system. And so Christianity became part of the way that we mobilized to fight back through the Cold War. In God We Trust was added to our money in the 1950s. Under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance in the 1950s. The idea here being that our Christianity, the fact that we're religious people, is part of the regime of freedom. And so in the post-Cold War world, that was no longer as necessary. So that happened. Also, a couple things that I, the reason I picked 94, a couple things happened. One was a sort of the peak high watermark of early 90s populism with the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives in 94. And I think it really also represented the peak of influence of evangelicalism within political conservatism. And then also in 94, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York City. And this led to a transformation of American cities. The cities were already coming back from their 1970s low, but in the 90s with the emergence of the gentrified global cities that we know. And people don't realize like what a dystopia places like New York were seen to be in the 1970s. By the end of the 1990s, it's basically the yuppies playground. And so this really opened the door for a repopulation of the city by young, affluent, educated people, often singles, Generation X, millennials, some younger boomers, and they developed a sort of urban sensibility. And so I think the revival of the cities that created a sort of a different cultural environment, the end of the Cold War, and then this sort of end of this sort of populist moment, which is sort of the essentially the the last bit of the realignment of evangelicals into the Republican column. I think those are some of the things that were at play in that time. How would you describe the neutral world? Well, again, the neutral world is one in which Christianity is no longer quite seen as a positive, but it's not really hated yet. It's just something you could be. I like to use this example. We meet. You say, I'm a Christian. And I might say, well, great. I'm a vegan. Let's talk. And there was sort of this idea that we could all just get along in a sort of diverse, 
pluralistic society. And we see this, I like to use the presidential sex scandals to illustrate some of the changes between these worlds. So if you go back to 1987, it was reported that Colorado Senator Gary Hart had had a young lady stay all night in his Washington townhouse. And that idea that he might have had an affair was enough to destroy his potential candidacy for president in 1988 in the Democratic Party. By 1998, when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, yes, Clinton was badly damaged by that scandal. And yet, the Democratic Party rallied around him. They said his personal behavior has no bearing on his professional execution and office. And I think we do see something profound there in the difference between how things played out with the Gary Hart scandal, which was merely an affair, versus how they played out with Lewinsky, which was arguably much worse because you had an extremely young person who actually worked for you as a much more powerful person. And so that really gives you a sense of it, I would say. How were the leaders of cultural engagement different from the evangelical leaders during the positive period there? There are a couple of ways we can look at the cultural engagement movement. One is as a sort of seeker sensitivity for the cities, except rather than a suburban sensibility, right? It's an urban sensibility. It's more into the arts. It's more to the intellectual life. It's affirming of the urban environment. It's a little more sophisticated. It could be, it's more also more diverse. It could be hip cool. It could be a focus on sort of multi-ethnic churches or immigrant communities, a lot of things there. So in a sense, you could argue this is a sort of seeker sensitivity for the cities. But there is an important difference in the sense that in the seeker sensitive era, Bill Hybels could assume people were actively seeking. This is part of what it meant to be in the positive world. You could kind of assume a latent background positivity to Christianity. And so when you get to the neutral world, it's not quite like that. These people had to like, attract an audience and earn a hearing for the gospel. But there was a certain kind of parallel there. Another way to think about them is as the opposite of the cultural engagers. Rather than fighting against the culture, they actually were very positive towards the culture. Not in every respect. There were certainly things they would critique, but they liked cities. They liked the arts. They liked big corporate America. They liked all the stuff that people in the cities would like. They liked that kind of urban lifestyle. They wanted to affirm it. They wanted to be part of it. They were not trying to fight against what was going on because at a great level, they liked a lot of the developments that were there. So I think there's a sense in which they were much more positive to the culture. It's like, hey, let's not fight with people. Let's sit down and have a conversation. And there may be areas where we disagree, but we can discuss civilly and you know, maybe we'll persuade you our way of thinking. So what happened in 2014 that signaled the beginning of the negative world for evangelicals? Well, something big happened during Obama's second term. A number of things happened. Obviously, 2015 was the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, which legalized gay marriage and, in a sense, legally enshrined this negative world condition. And so you can say that 2014 was the year before that. I don't think people really realize how quickly there was a sea change in thinking on that. In 2008, okay, California, arguably the most bluest state in the country, passed a constitutional amendment by popular vote banning gay marriage. Yes, California did that. Barack Obama claimed to oppose gay marriage in 2008. He was lying. He had actually been on record in favor of it in the 1990s in the Illinois state legislature. But he felt compelled not only to lie about it and say he opposed it, but to cite his Christian faith 
as a reason why. I believe Hillary Clinton also opposed gay marriage at that time. Uh, and then we have, you know, 2015, it's legalized nationally. By 2016, Donald Trump, the Republican nominee for president, is walking out on stage at rallies holding pride flags in Iowa. So clearly there's been a, a vast sea change there. 2014 was also the year that uh, the progressive commentator Matt Iglesias dated the start of what was called the Great Awakening. Now, you could have potentially gone back to the Trayvon Martin killing, which I believe might have been in 2012. But in there, in Trayvon Martin, Ferguson, the BLM movement, all of that produced essentially this extraordinary rise in rhetoric around race. And there's been research looking at terms, the appearance of terms in the New York Times and elite media in terms like racism and white supremacy and reparations and all that just exploded during Obama's second turn. So that really became one of the things that really kind of upended the culture a little bit. Something clearly radically did shift there. And you you could look at Donald Trump winning the presidential nomination and then being elected president for the Republican Party. Something was truly inconceivable in a previous era. And I think that shows that the implications of what we think of as the negative world are not always obvious. We might like to think that it mostly affects Christians who know how to adjust to being lower status in society, but it also affects society itself. The Christian standards that would have prohibited someone like Donald Trump from getting the nomination now don't apply anymore. And so here's a guy, his sex scandal, you can think about the Access Hollywood tape that the media had. They were sitting on it. They tried to drop it on him as an October surprise. And it was basically a 48-hour blip of the scandal. Nobody cared about that kind of behavior anymore. Now, some people did. And that's one of the things that fueled this sort of evangelical civil war. Some people couldn't get over that. But nevertheless, I think it did show that there are some, some crazy things that happened in society, you know, starting sometime in Obama's second term. On the other side of the break, we're going to describe the main strategy in the negative period for evangelicals. Aaron Wren is our guest. We're talking about evangelicalism and culture. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start. The Foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com 
and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. talking about evangelicalism and culture with Aaron Wren of The American Reformer. He is author of a column for First Things titled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Aaron, what is the main strategy in the negative period? Well, it's interesting you say that because from an evangelical perspective, there really hasn't been one. When we entered the positive world, evangelicals came up with these strategies to respond to it. And that adaptability is really what made evangelicalism a thing and allowed it to essentially displace mainline Christianity as the primary expression of Christianity in America. Evangelicalism was a much smaller movement prior to that sort of decline. So the mainlines could not adapt to changing times, but the evangelicals were able to adapt. And again, we see the same thing in sort of the urban world of the cultural engagement period and the neutral world of the 90s and the 2000s, great adaptability to create new strategies for reaching people. Then you get into this negative world, and you see that there really hasn't been a specific strategy. The main one that's been articulated is Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. Now, Dreher is Eastern Orthodox, formerly Catholic. He's pretty open that he doesn't really know a lot about the evangelical world, and probably he would not have selected a monastic image if he knew that that was going to have such negative connotations. But nevertheless, the evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict option. Christianity Today magazine, which is a big evangelical magazine, ran a mission to symposium before people to react to it, and they all had substantial criticisms of it. And I think what that showed was they were sort of in denial about this at the time. You know, I saw this developing. In fact, the main reason I actually picked 2014 specifically is the date. 
for the start of the negative world is that's when I first created my framework. And then over a few years, I refined it, originally published it in 2017 in my newsletter at AaronRen.com, and then Forced Things asked me to update and republish it. And it actually turned out to be their biggest article of the year last year in the print edition. And so I'm gratified about that. But I think that the the timing is the point where evangelicals are starting to recognize that something's fundamentally changed. And because they hadn't recognized something fundamentally changed, they really didn't develop any strategies for it. And so I'm hopeful that there will be some strategies. Right now, I, I think most of these groups are just kind of doubling down on what they've been doing and even to some extent deforming under the pressures of the negative world. Just as one example, if you look at the culture warriors, these are the people who said, Bill Clinton is simply morally disqualified from being president because he had this affair with Lewinsky. It doesn't matter what he might do in office. He's just simply not morally qualified. Well, then all of a sudden Trump comes along and they adopt a sort of a realpolitik view. They're like, well, we can't let Hillary win, can we? And they sort of went all in on Trump. And, you know, and that course, you know, there's reasons to vote for Trump. You know, I think you could take this point of view that like, well, what else are we going to do? Nevertheless, they come across very much looking like hypocrites. And one of the reasons that there's been this sort of crack up is because some people like David French or Russell Moore, they simply couldn't abide that. And uh, a number, especially these sort of affluent suburban types to whom boorish behavior is a big turnoff, they just couldn't handle Trump. And so they, that sort of has been one. So that's one of the things. And then this woke stuff, I think, on the other side is you've really seen the cultural engagement people go all in on essentially kind of Black Lives Matter style race rhetoric. It's basically copy paste from secular society with a, a few uh, biblical flourishes or gloss put on top of it. And again, many other people don't like that. And they're like, wait a minute, the church is going woke. We weren't supposed to do that. And so I really think sort of Trump and wokeism became the two events that were really sort of polarizing people. And then later, the pandemic really created a lot of dissension as well. Although I think the debates on whether to meet or not meet or have mass requirements or and all of that really was much more a reflection of pre-existing divide than manufacturing new ones. But nevertheless, churches are really being divided and torn asunder by many of these things. You know, there are other sort of dividing lines as well, particularly around like LGBT type issues that I don't really go too much into in there. But that's another one that's sort of being rethought as well. Other than uh, maybe what you mentioned there, early denial, why do you think evangelicals haven't developed their own version of Dreyer's Benedict Option? Well, it's interesting that Dreher is a Generation X guy like me. Evangelicalism has very much been a baby boomer driven movement in my view. Now, that's not true. David French and Russell Moore are Generation X. So it's not 100% accurate, but I think it's still the case that a lot of the ministry models were set in the baby boomer era. And many of the leading lights are boomers or, you know, where until recently might have even been pre boomers. And so, there just hasn't been sort of new generation people coming up with great new strategies. I think a lot of times it's sort of younger people like Hybels was in the 70s who developed, you know, new strategies. And so there probably are people out there looking to develop new models. And over time, they will sort of congeal in, you know, in the way some of these other movements congealed. But I, I do think there is sort of a, you know, we've still had this sort of baby boomer domination of the culture. 
obviously, if you look at our national leadership, Joe Biden technically is silent generation. People like uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and uh, Chuck Schumer, you know, Nancy Pelosi. There were a lot of old people. Basically, Hillary Clinton, born 47, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, I think were all born in 1946. This kind of early cohort boomers, or essentially this 1940 to 1955 group, is really dominated America for a very, very long time. So long as they sort of were running things and controlled the institutions and the wealth, it's become a little difficult. I think it's put a kind of put a block on change because they are continuing to do sort of, you know, what they're comfortable with and what their generations have been doing. I think now we're also starting to see the generational turnover is really starting to happen. And so uh, with baby boomer retirements from business and many other things, we're going to have to see new things develop just as a necessity, which will be challenging because, you know, the baby boomers were really, really good at building things and they were really good at running things and they made a lot of money and they were very generous at funding things. And I'm not sure that, you know, my generation has been as good at building things. We've excelled as social critics, but maybe we haven't been as big an institution builder. So every generation sort of got its knocks. And I think it's definitely going to have to be younger generations that are going to have to figure out how to build kind of the next generation of strategies for the negative world. Now, my kind of view is that probably Generation X people like myself are, are the ones that sort of clear the space, if you will. And it'll have to really be the millennials that do the building. So you say that the cultural engagers were most effective, negatively affected by the shift to the negative period. Why is that? I don't know per se that they were the most negatively affected, but I think they have the most at risk. And that's simply by virtue of where they're located. When you're located in central city areas, particularly in elite coastal cities like New York, San Francisco, DC, or you're in college towns, you are simply much more exposed to the pressures of the tip of the spear of elite cultural society. You know, I, I lived in New York for several years. I've lived in Chicago. So I understand how that goes. I also grew up in rural Southern Indiana. And if you go back to my hometown, it's sort of still the positive world down there. Those people who tend to work in blue collar professions, they don't have as many ideological litmus tests on their employment or on remaining a member in good standing of society. And they're simply not as affluent and have a lot less to lose by virtue of that. So I think there is a sense in which the cultural engagers are much more exposed to the pressures of society. It's also the case that cultural engagement was really the highest status version of Christianity. Although, in a sense, the shift from the positive to the neutral world represented a downward shift in the status of Christianity and society, moving from something like a culture war to a cultural engagement model actually improves your social status. When you're sort of more friendly towards society and less hostile towards it, then you tend to get along better with the New York Times and you tend to be liked more than hated. Some of the old guys like Pat Robertson, he used to sort of revel in being hated. If there was a hit job on him in the paper, he could just fundraise off of it on the 700 Club. Whereas the cultural engagers have not wanted to be that. They've wanted to be able to sit down with people and have conversations. It's kind of hard to do that when you're throwing pies in their face. Also versus the seeker sensitives, it's the case that in America, urban is higher status than suburban. So there's sort of at the highest status of society, they're more affluent and therefore they have more to lose. And they sort of pay, face a little bit of a painful downgrade in their standing in 
elite society. You know, I'm not sure how exactly you would classify the people who are behind the He Gets Us ad campaign. If you're familiar with that, it's a hundred million, now maybe a billion dollar ad campaign to introduce people to Jesus. And they're putting out very nice ads and they tend to be uncontroversial. It's like Jesus loved his enemy. Jesus was a refugee too. And they run that ad, Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus loved the people you hate. You know, he loves all of us. We need to love our enemies. They run that on the Super Bowl and they're getting called fascists. So it's as attempt to be as nice as possible, but it's simply not possible to win people over today unless you embrace all of the ideologies of secular society. And so that really is going to put enormous pressure on them. And that's why I say they're the most at risk. It does not mean that they've necessarily deformed the most. I think there's plenty of deformation to go around, but they certainly you know, have the most to lose. At our uh, 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference, Dr. Ryan Anderson said that President Trump's election was hitting the pause button, not the rewind button. It seems to me that conservative Christians 65 plus viewed Trump's election as a rewind, while conservative Christians not of retirement age viewed the 2016 presidential election as a pause. Am I wrong about those demographics? There might be something to that. I do think a lot of Trump voters who are sort of mainstream Republican types had this idea that he could be like a new Reagan. He could come in and he could actually, if we win the election, then we can start moving things in the right direction or a better direction. When I think that the reality is, it's a kind of an unpleasant reality, is that the culture has shifted in ways such that essentially change can't really come through the political process in the sense that we think about it. It's not a matter of winning elections, even for president, in order to turn the country in the way that you want, because all of the institutions of society are united and aligned around a particular vision of the world. And we saw that when Trump ran. He faced the combined opposition of essentially every major institution in society, and he won. But then they were essentially able to completely undermine him for four years and stymie him, you know, six different ways from Sunday. And so I don't think that we're going to get off the road we're on through a purely political process. We didn't vote our way into where we are today, and we're not going to vote our way out of it. Whereas I still think a lot of people who uh, voted for Trump maybe in 2016 thought that there was this, we can essentially vote for change, when the reality is we're not going to be allowed to vote for change. Aaron Wren is our guest. He's co-founder and senior fellow at the American Reformer. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis and author of a column for First Things titled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. He says that uh, the attempts to engage the culture often brings more culture into the church than the gospel to the culture. We'll find out what he means next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, 
and the word of the Lord endures forever. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference is your opportunity to meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. The early bird registration deadline is March 15th. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We're talking about evangelicalism and culture with Aaron Wren. Aaron, you say that the cultural engagers have increasingly brought secular culture movements into the church rather than the gospel to the culture. What do you mean by that? You know, I, I think the, the example that I think is certainly the, the teachings on race, you know, I, I did a little research on this, and I even saw it in the church right around that same sort of Obama second term, just a massive explosion in people talking about race. And again, their views on race are, for all intents and purposes, identical to that of secular society. It's very much the whole woke discourse, you know, again, with a slightly evangelical feel on it. I mean, I think the fact that they discovered this right at the time that secular society discovered it, and the fact that their views of it are basically the same as secular societies, show that they are looking to take essentially the world's teachings to the church, incorporate the world's teachings into the church. Whereas I think if you look at a previous generations of people who are very focused on racial reconciliation, like John Perkins, for example, if you know him, he definitely believed in structural injustices and things of that nature, but he also had a particularly Christian vision of what racial reconciliation looked like. And one of the things I love about him is 
John Perkins never forgot his own personal need for the gospel. So if you go back and look at the movement he founded, the Christian Community Development Association, I think many of the tenets of that around relocation, which in, you know, encouraging people to move into these extremely deprived minority neighborhoods, I think that's now repudiated. That's viewed as colonialism. And so here was a guy who really wanted to see reconciliation and had a specifically Christian vision around it, which I do not see today. Now, I think it's also fair to say that John Perkins' vision did not produce the results that he had hoped for. So I'm not surprised that some younger generation people might be disillusioned with that approach, but it's an example of trying to come up with something that's genuinely gospel and Christianity designed, while at the same time taking account of current conditions in the country today. There's nothing wrong with doing that or analyzing the structures of society. But when, again, when you look at what people are saying in the evangelical world on race, it's basically just echoing talking points from a corporate DEI training or something of that nature. You know, I studied cities professionally for a number of years. And so I'm not an expert on race, but you get to learn a lot about race when you study cities because it's impossible to understand cities in America without something about race. And the truth is, most of these evangelicals don't show any evidence of having any substantive knowledge at all about race in America. Again, they, they seem to have basically talking points. That's an example of it. To the extent that they're critiquing secular society, you know, it might be a critique of capitalism or something that's certainly not going to get you uninvited from a Georgetown cocktail party. Where do the uh, ex-evangelicals, where does that trend fit into all of this? Well, the ex-evangelicals are sort of a product of this trend towards, you know, first the neutral world and then the negative world is Christianity fell out of favor that, you know, it fell out of favor with them. I mean, it's in part a sociological phenomenon and particularly as the cost of becoming a Christian socially, potentially economically in the country go up as you take a status set at a minimum for identifying as a Christian, you're going to have to at least have a suspicious view if people think that you might be one of those Christians, even if merely identifying it doesn't necessarily disqualify you, they wouldn't know what you actually believe, then it's no surprise that people are going to opt out. And, you know, few of us are so crass as to make calculated decisions of that nature, but we have a way of subtly adapting to social pressures and trends in ways of which we're not entirely conscious. I mean, how many times you've probably had this experience, you know, you'll, you'll go buy something or you'll be interested in something. Oh, I decided to start baking during the pandemic and look at me. I started to become a baker because I'm at home and look how cool this is. And then you realize that like everybody's baking during the pandemic and you're just a fashion victim. <laughs> I'm somebody that always wants to try to have my own unique things, but like every time I turn around, I just find out I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. So there is a sense in which, it's very, very difficult to resist these kinds of social pressures. And I think, you know, the social pressures of the world help produce the ex-evangelical phenomenon. And if we were still in a society where there were social penalties to being an atheist or explicitly anti-Christian, we would probably see fewer ex-evangelicals. There are other factors as well, such as the generational change. Again, the truth is evangelicalism was heavily designed with baby boomers in mind, some of these younger people don't resonate with it. There's a sort of a generation gap, the way that there was a generation gap between the boomers and their parents. And so there's a lot of things going on. But, you know, I would expect that once you have to pay a material price for being a Christian in America and you no longer get social benefits for being a Christian, 
there is going to be an exodus out of the pews on the one hand. And on the other, I would expect that there is going to be a lot of pressure to bring the beliefs of the church into line with secular culture to eliminate those penalties. I had originally thought there were going to be many more people simply leave the faith. But as it turned out, I think that that there weren't as many ex-evangelicals, perhaps, as I originally thought. But I certainly think the pressure to sort of bring the church into conformance with secular society is going to be a continued and ongoing trend. Aaron, I'm a pastor in the conservative confessional creedal church body. It's the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We have the second largest parochial school system in the United States, and we have six universities kind of oversized for the size of our denomination. And we have our own financial institutions. Does this give us an advantage in a negative world? Well, one thing that I think that the LCMS has done has been to avoid sort of the cultural adaptation of the more evangelical crowd. I mean, if you look at the sociology surveys, they tend to classify the LCMS as a evangelical denomination. But in my view, it's a little more mainline-ish sort of in the way that it operates. And so that's probably a benefit in the sense that because you were never really trying to alter the, you know, your liturgies to try to appeal to the greatest cultural moment, and I realize there are some kind of more contemporary liturgy churches, you're probably in good shape there. And having your own institutions probably does help you at some level because you can control your own destiny. So I think there are opportunities there. But, you know, if, if membership starts declining, if things start happening there, then having this big footprint of institutions quickly becomes a liability. You know, the Catholic Church has struggled with what to do with all their surplus parish buildings and things of that nature. And my understanding is that the LCMS skews quite old, actually. There was just some research that came out on that. And so I would be attuned uh, to that and also, again, be attuned to what kind of the younger generation is looking for. But I, I would think, depending on how the numbers in your denomination go, is going to determine how having that big footprint of assets plays out. With a, a minute here, if you could just prognosticate, what do you think is the future of evangelicalism in America? It's unclear what's going to happen. I definitely see a disintegrating movement. It was never really a monolithic movement. It was probably artificially viewed as monolithic, but we're going to see divisions would be what I would anticipate. I think we would anticipate some people continuing to leave. I think we would see people essentially creating accommodationist theologies on the one hand. And I think on the other, you're going to see other people, maybe a smaller movement, creating more kind of reactionary uh, theologies, if you want to call it that. So there's been this sort of small but uh, growing neo-patriarchy movement in evangelicalism. So I, you know, I think we're going to see people try to do these things, but I would, I would suggest things are going to be smaller. Many of the baby boomer institutions are going to struggle to reinvent themselves. Many of the legacy institutions like some of the Christian colleges are really going to struggle with enrollment and finances and how it's going to land. I don't know for sure. Aaron Wren is co-founder and senior fellow at the American Reformer, a nonprofit seeking to reinvigorate Protestantism in American life. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, and he's author of a column for First Things titled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. You'll find a link to the American Reformer and to Aaron's column at our website, issuesetc.org. 
click Talk On Demand Archives. Aaron, thank you. Thanks for having me on. In Hour 2 of Issues, etc., we'll be studying the hymn of the day for Ash Wednesday from Depths of Woe I Cry to Thee, Dr. Arthur Just of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, will be our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in